0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode, let's discuss 1917 and Netflix's new film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. James and I just watched Netflix's excellent new film, All Quiet on the Western Front. We were moved by the film, found it really excellent, and we love war movies, so we thought, why not pair that movie up with Sam Mendez's film, 1917? They both cover the Western Front in World War One. so let's get into it. Yeah, these th- films are basically brothers, you know, it's covering... The Western Front, the trench warfare that was going on in World War One. This war lasted about, what is it, four years, 1914 to 1918. And not only was it horrifically deadly, one of the most deadly wars of all time, the world never seen anything like this before in terms of how many casualties there were. Virtually the entire war- world was involved in this war. The total number of civilian and military casualties in World War One was around 40 million. And wow. the war technology had just drastically changed so much. That's what caused so much death. You know, we had the first aerial dogfights. We had the first submarine attacks, the first tanks ever used in war. We have the Zeppelin bombings uh, by the Germans, trench warfare, toxic gases. And it seems like trench warfare, warfare from World War I is a really interesting storytelling device because I think of how horrific the conditions were. And the juxtaposition I think it does so well with All Quiet in the Western Front in the film, the new one from Netflix, of showing the contrast between these soldiers who are going to their deaths, dying in the mud in these trenches, versus the fat cats who run the countries, the elitists, the the generals who are living in luxury. I think that's one of the great changes that they made to the film because this is the third time that the book – has been turned into a movie. The first one was in 1930, then the second one was in 1979. And now this is a retelling of it, and what they did differently was add in the armistice, the signing of the Cease Fire... As a, as a secondary plot-telling device. I, we watched it, and I was like, I, de- I don't remember the sequence. So in that the original. was all added. So it's okay. all, that's all pretty much factual stuff that happened. Yeah. Those are real people, like the character that Daniel Bruhl plays, real people who lived and were involved in the signing, this treaty, but, co- but cross-cutting that with the battles, with the trench warfare, it yeah. worked really well for storytelling. And the Western Front was such a dangerous area. 17 million soldiers were killed just in the Western Front, and throughout the entire course of the war the western front line only moved about 400 meters at the most, and it kept going back and forth side by side. And, so, and the entire warfare of that area was just trying to take new land, trying to take over new land. Both sides were doing it, and it was just like this battle of basically uh, resistance against ag- resistance. against resistance, And they were just stuck there for years. In both films, 1917 and All oh, Quiet on the Western Front, they do have similar approaches. They were both shot digitally. Obviously, 1917 is famous for its long-take achievement. Uh, it was not technically one long take, but they shot it and edited it beautifully and seamlessly to make it appear as though it was it is one long take. And I love the approach. I think it's really impactful, very powerful, because it has the real-time aspect. Real-time in terms of this movie— uh, It just feels like it's happening in a two-hour period. And I've rarely experienced a film like that. There's only a handful that really actually pull that off. If you take a movie like Birdman, it has the same approach in cinematography and editing. But that takes place over the course of a day and a half. So it doesn't have the real-time aspect that this film does. And to see not just like... And there are other long-take movies. Silent House with Elizabeth Olsen. uh, Veronica, which is a great French film. They're all one takes, but they're very small in scope, few characters. But to see a movie of this scale, a giant World War I film, being shot with that style, I thought it was very mesmerizing. And the only reason why it didn't win Best Picture and the only, the only reason why Sam Mendes didn't win Best Director was because Parasite came out that year. Mm-hmm. And that's an all-time movie. This is an all-time war movie. And one of the best of the last decade. But Parasite, it really is an all-timer. Like for, a top 100 movie yeah, of all for time. For film history. And that, and if 1917 had come out any other year, I feel confident that Sam Mendes and the film would have won. He actually won the Golden Globe and the DGA Award. So it was he was a shoe in for Best Director, but Bong Joon-ho came out on top. And All Quiet on the Western Front, it actually approaches it in a very similar way with the cinematography. But also, I like how... All Quiet on the Western Front, it showcases the German side, which the story does. And I I think it's amazing to be able to tell the story of the the enemy side of uh, culture that we fought against. I think it's absolutely appropriate, and it's important to tell stories of everyone involved in in conflict. But what this does is, especially with the youth we see, Paul and the other characters, they are completely um, sold on war. They're excited. They're... Paul um, changes his birth date to get into so that he can get drafted and, and enter the war. The kids are excited and elated. The German youth want to kill the French. They want to kill the British. They want to be proud Germans. They want to fulfill the destiny of their culture and their people. And so they were sold on this by the government and by the basically the marketing campaigns of the warfare. And then when they get to war, Within the first day, they see how horrible of a place it is. Yeah, that was great, the, the technical specs that you were talking about, because I believe 1917 was the first film ever shot with the Ari Alexa Mini he, LF, LF. And then this film, All Quiet on the Western Front, was also shot with that. So that's why not only does it look similar with the cinematography, Obviously, 1917 is superior cinematography. You have Roger Deakins, the goat, one of the greatest cinematographers. And I would call him the of greatest of all time. One of the best yeah. artists of all time behind the camera. He filmed 1917. That's why you know it looks incredible. It might be one of the best looking movies of this century. You could argue that for sure. And then. All Quiet on the Western Front, really good cinematography, not quite the same when it comes to lighting and artistry, but they did a. a there are still plenty of tremendous shots in this film. Yeah. There are a few shots in All Quiet on the Western Front that I thought were kind of weak compared to the rest of the film, but I would say 99.5% of that movie looked beautiful, looked gorgeous, whereas 1917, that entire film was so well planned and art- artistically crafted. I will say that there are some long lenses in Western Front that threw me out. And it did feel a little bit like television-y and at a few, in a few scenes. Yeah, but they also incorporated lots of great long takes, yeah. lots of great running shots. A lot of these films are so similar. It seems like if 1917 didn't come out, maybe they would not have remade All Quiet on the Western Front into this film from Netflix. And in addition to that, they look very similar, lots of same characters, but they do different things really well. You know, some things that I think All Quiet on the Western Front does really well with this film, the new interpretation from 2022, is it, it shows death. 1917 does this as well, but... Really, I think All Quiet on the Western Front, they really wanted to showcase the death, the death toll, the the toll that it took on every country that was involved and how tragic and almost futile it seems that all these young men had to die in battle and all these casualties from civilians had to occur, you know, opening the film. With the process of what happens to the dead soldiers, how they're basically just treated like trash in a lot of ways. And the recycling of their clothing, the remanufacturing of their bullet holes and their jackets to be repurposed and given to a new recruit that's going into the Western Front. I think they did a terrific job showing what happens to the bodies and how horrific it is and how basically they mean nothing to the people who run the countries, which is tragic. And the stubbornness of the people who are in charge because Daniel Brühl's character, Birdzinger, I'm sorry, what's his name in it? At, at Erzberger, uh, he ends up negotiating the peace treaty in the Amstens. He's informed that well, another 40,000 German soldiers had died that month. And this is 18 months after we saw Paul's first day in warfare. And many Germans died that day. That was Heinrich. Yeah, uh, Heinrich. I'm sorry. They It was a losing battle at this point for Germany. Like they had no chance of really winning this war but they kept fighting, and the leadership kept pushing and kept going. And even even at the end of the film, in the third act, when the armistice is going into effect in the... Armistice. Ra- armistice. 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 Yeah. Armistice? Yeah, sorry. When that's going into effect in only a few more hours, that commander still says, we're going to try to take this land. We're not going to go out without a fight. The The peace treaty was signed. They, they didn't have to fight, but they just kept going. And obviously the French, they were in... In their barracks, and they were in um, the trenches. Trenches, but they were and they weren't expecting an attack. And then the Germans came up and kind of surprised them by charging at them. The French never expected that they would try to attack with only a few hours left of actual technical warfare. A few minutes, there's yeah, fifteen minutes left. Yeah, that's why I think when I watch the movie, I feel like that's a very fascinating story to tell. Is that final, like, two hours? Well, I I think what they're trying to do with All Quiet on the Western Front compared to 1917, which 1917, you know, it's that long take. It's a great singular story of just, like, pretty much this one character's journey to try to warn a troop that they're heading into a trap and following the British soldiers and obviously just the one that survives to that point. Pretty fast-paced story, you know, not a ton happens in terms of large-scale storytelling for the war, whereas All Quiet on the Western Front, it seems like it's a very long film. It's about two and a half hours long, lots of different climactic beats. We have, like, three or four different battles. Lots of scenes, yeah. But I think what they're trying to do is to show how drawn out the war was, how much pointless death there was how so many people just died for no reason how no side would concede and how it just kept going on and on and on i think that's what they were trying to do with this film with this character paul who is just wants to get out of there, but he's become a soldier and a recruit and this war just keeps going on and on. There's a battle, then they think they're free from the battles, then another battle, and then he thinks he survived the war, and then there's another battle. It just won't stop ending. I think the, the filmmakers are trying to draw it out to make it feel like what the war was really like for the for real people, how it just never would end. And the battles did feel overwhelming and chaotic and unwinnable at times. And it really you really felt that, especially the first the first day. I love the first day because in the morning the kids are so excited. They're all cheering and chanting and singing songs and Oh yes, we're gonna be we're gonna be soldiers, we're gonna kill the French. This we're, is after the opening yeah, where yeah. where Heinrich dies. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna um, take take Paris. There's they're like, We're going to Paris, yeah. And they're marching and they're so happy, but then eight hours later they're still marching and you can the looks on their faces are like we're still marching. Oh, my God, and their commander officer is berating them. He, uh, he even forces Paul to keep the mask on because he was delayed with putting his on. And then that leads into finally going to the trenches for the first time and encountering bloodshed and death until that explosion takes place. And then Paul is assigned the duty of collecting the, the dog tags of the fallen soldiers. That all happens on his first day. And he, he also finds the dead body of his best friend on the first day. And it was I thought that was so affecting the show just in the 24 hour period, the elation, excitement and positivity the kids had, which they were completely misled and encouraged by the government and by authority figures. This is what you have to do. This is how you you know, prove yourself to the mother motherland, the fatherland, the fatherland. And then when they get there and they see the true despair, the true horror and the true pointless violence and death that is taking place every single day. And to lose your best friend the first day you're there. I mean, and then it's a great shot where um, the next time we see Paul is 18 months later and he's on that caravan sitting in the back of the truck and his face, he looks like he's aged five years. One of the things I think that All Quiet on the Western Front does so well and I think is a, a major factor that 1917 doesn't really do because it's a different kind of story is showing what we've been talking about uh, with the indoctrination of youth and the exploitation of young citizens of a country, in the perspective of both the youth who, like you're just saying, they're they've been indoctrinated, they've been basically radicalized, and they think that they're going to find honor on the battlefield. They'll just be there for six Glory. weeks, and they'll they'll be home for Christmas. You're going to win. You're not going to die. You're going to be a hero. You'll get a medal, and you'll be welcomed home as a hero, and they'll throw parades in your name and your honor. And they're so young, and you can tell that they don't know anything about what's going on. They've barely been trained for this. I mean, even when they're in the truck, the guy, the the veteran soldier, their superiors, like making sure their weapons are clean and cocked correctly, and you can tell they have no idea what they're getting into. And that speech that the superior German, the, the elders, whoever they are, whether they when were they sign up, whether they were yeah. academics or part of the the military giving that passion speech where you will survive and you will win and you will go to Paris and you will be heroes. And they're all just jacked up, ready to go. And it shows how ignorant they are, but also the exploitation of the the German high command. But this happens in every country, the exploitation of youth. And they're basically just turned into scraps of meat to throw into an army, to throw into a battle. And and also uh, juxtaposing the perspective of the wealthy elite germans the the generals the politicians where they're living in luxury and they're they're eating beautifully luxurious luxurious meals the general even the french commander on the train he's complaining about the croissants not being french fresh enough whereas every minute both sides are losing men in battle constantly and it's just a great juxtaposition to show the fat cats which is commonly used in this film the fat cat term of the people who run countries don't give a crap about their soldiers. They are just literally just bodies to throw at bullets. That's all they are to them. Even they get stale bread. They're 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 literally surviving against their enemies, but also they're trying to survive against the enemies of the leaders of their country at the same time. Yeah, and, and there's great instances where twice in trenches, like horrible things are happening. But then soldiers, are like when they invade that germ that French trench, they start eating the cheese and food and meat they have there because like the battle's going on, but they're starving. They're starving every day and the theme of that movie is is displayed perfectly by that o- superior authority figure the older gentleman who's speaking to all the kids and he says he said this war isn't about the individual the, this war is about us as a collective and that's how we win the war what he's saying is we're trying to throw as many bodies as we can at our enemies in order to defeat them there's no way we can do this with small tactics we have to just sacrifice so many young men in order to achieve this goal, and that's what I think the one of the main themes of the movie is. And whereas 1917, what I really love about that film because for being such a large scale war film, you don't see that many big battles. All, all the conflicts are pretty minor uh, between a few characters. I love the individualistic nature of the story and the plot. We're following Blake and Schofield for the first act of the film. And then uh, when Blake has that tragic death, then we're follow- following Schofield for the entire run of the movie. I like the the small scope of the approach because every war film, there's big battles. It's bombastic. It's You see people getting shot and killed in the background. This, it's chaos and there's a lot going on. But we've seen that a lot of times. And that's why I found 1917 to be really unique and really special in its approach of showing we're in war. We're in war. We're going through no man's land, through the trenches. Yes, battles are happening. But we're not like seeing a full scale war take place, not a full scale huge onslaught. We're following Schofield and that's it. And I really like that approach to the film. That's what made it feel really special and unique in the genre. Yeah, it's really not until the climactic fight where the British are storming no man's land to fight the Germans, and he runs a parallel the first charge. Rush, yeah. Yeah. But r- even that, we're not seeing people firing. We're not getting 100 air shots of people firing on both sides. It's still just with Schofield. Exactly. So that's really the, the only big battle you see in that film. But what I also love that All Quiet on the Western Front does, just to keep expanding on that is, and to supplement the, the fact of the change in weapon artillery and, and weapon technology in war, where the first battle that paul enters or when they first get to the trenches they are being bombarded attacked the bunker crashing in was horrific it was terrifying just being artillery shelled because we're learning about the artillery barrage which is what they do when they're trying to move up a couple dozen meters Meters, yeah that's it and people are dying left and right, and you don't even see a French soldier for the first half of this movie at all. All you see is the death of one side of this battle from the artillery and the advanced weaponry of the other we- of the other soldiers, and then we finally see Frenchmen around the second half of the film, then some close-quarter combat, which is really tragic. Well, what we do see in the first opening, I'm sorry, with, with Heinrich we yeah. see, uh, and what I I really like about the, the movie is they kill Heinrich off right away pretty much. Yeah. You think he's going to be the hero of the film. And that's what I think, All Quiet on the Western Front did so so well. Whereas in 1917, I was so grateful that Schofield survived in that great bookend shot where he's sitting in this tree sleeping in the opening of the film. In the end of the film, he's leaning against the tree looking at the photos of his family, his wife and children. And All Quiet on the Western Front, they kill off every main character that we know of or, or enjoy or like. They kill Paul at the end of the film, which I think was really important because it shows the impact of death. And I think maybe the best shot of the entire film... When Paul is finally dead, we see him just leaned against the inside of the trench wall. Gets his dog tag taken off. He, it's like a forty-five second shot, a very slow push in of his dead face. It's just really important, again, I think the main theme of the film was to be very anti-war and to show the death that was caused because of the war. Yeah, I think it was. I think if he had survived, it would have felt a little too close to the ending of 1917. So I thought it was smart that they killed him off to show that really this, there was no winning in any way and nothing good came from this. I will say that I think 1917 pulled off the emotional stakes better because at the end of 1917, I was weeping. Because Schofield, he has to walk through the um, like the um, hospital area, the medical bay, and we're seeing all the men who are being amputated, have been amputated, who are suffering. Um, it's just beds and beds and beds, and also lots of dead soldiers. And then just seeing that after everything that Schofield had been through, like I was, I was weeping, I was crying. And then when he had his, he had the talk with Blake's brother. I was just like an absolute mess. And then also Blake's death was horribly tragic. I cried. I I was like an absolute blubbering, sobbing mess during that scene as well because of how surprising it was. And Blake showing compassion to the German soldier who they pulled out of the crash plane, which was on fire. And out of the compassion of his heart, because Scofield was like, should we kill him? Blake was like, no, just get me some water. Something like compassion will get you killed in wartime. And you you thought the scene was just so shocking to see. You thought Blake was going to make it through. You thought he was going to be there with, with Schofield the entire film. And then seeing him just get stabbed and then slowly bleed out, uh, the long take was so affecting. Also, they, they literally like I digitally color corrected his face to make it paler and paler as seconds passed by. And so he was just completely ghost white by the time he died. It felt so visceral and so real. I think it's one of the most affecting movie deaths I've seen recently. But for me, I think 1917 really pulled the emotional stakes for me. I really felt it. With Western Front, I was emotional, but I didn't get choked up. I didn't get that gravitas of uh, flooding of tragedy. It was more of like I, th- I think I might have been a little too overwhelmed with the violence and so much bloodshed. I might have, that might be the reason why I didn't feel emotionally the same way as I did with 1917. I agree. 1917, I felt way more emotions for sure, for the same reasons. I think just the onslaught of death, which was, I think, one of the main themes of the film for Western Front. That's why they yeah. did that. But speaking of compassion, compassion was also a theme in Western Front between soldiers, between enemies. There are multiple scenes where. Enemies are face to face with each other, whether it be single combat, hand to hand combat, where they almost hesitate, where they don't want to kill each other. But it's basically you have to fight or else one of you is going to die. Who's it going to be, basically? And the one moment in All Quiet on the Western Front where I got emotional and choked up and shed a few tears was in the third act when Paul is running back from the invasion by the French by the, by the French with the flamethrowers and everything after they were attacking and he falls into that big bomb pit with the water, and he fights one-on-one with one of the Frenchmen. They look at each other for a few seconds, and Paul's like, he's going to shoot me, and but like they don't really want to kill each other, but they kind of have to. Same thing happens in the bunker right before his real death at the end of the film. And Paul overpowers him and stabs him multiple times. And it's really interesting to show that despite the fact that he just stabbed this person fatally multiple times, he is terrified to even look at him. He's more scared of this dying man than he is of the potential Frenchman with guns and flamethrowers coming at him. He can barely look at the Frenchman that's dying on the ground. And he tries to make him be quiet. He shoves the dirt and the mud inside of his mouth. But then he feels compassion and feels so bad about what he's done That he tries to clean up his face he tries to give him some water to clear out his throat and clear out his mouth he tries to even patch up his stab wounds in his heart and his lungs with a piece of gauze which is pointless and then the man dies and passed away it was very and it was very intense and powerful because they drew it out for like three four minutes of him trying to save this person that he died with there's no chance of saving him and then what paul does is he goes through his pockets the frenchman's pockets and he finds the photo of the man's family and he begins to weep and he apologizes and he, he can't believe what he's done. And and I think they contrast it so great with the mud that's dried up on his face, how he's basically become two different kinds of people because of the war and the, the caked mud on the side of his face has basically like he's lost part of his soul. I, I see that. So I think that was a great shot and great uh, makeup design that they did with that. But it is a tragic moment to see what he's done. And but to show the, the fact that he basically has to, because if he doesn't, he's going to die. And. It's It's not that they can have a conversation. Yeah, it's impossible to know what you do. But then it happens in the third act right before he gets stabbed in the back with the, the bayonet. From the Frenchman, the two guys, it's him. There's a couple minutes before the ceasefire has to go into effect at 11 a.m., the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And they're just looking at each other, not wanting to fight. They just, none of them want to be there. And Kat has They want to wait it out, you can see. Kat has a great piece of dialogue earlier where he says, no man on either side wants to be here. We don't want to fight, but we have to, basically, because we're forced into it. It's a great moment. I think that um, also what was really—I think the most affecting death that I saw was— um, his buddy—I can't remember his name—was a Jaden who got burned up. So that Jaden, no, that it was um, it was uh, Franz. is so, the one with the eye. that okay. dies in, yeah, the, in the early med day. So um, Franz. Oh no, Albert gets lit on fire. Albert, okay, thing. Albert, yeah, Albert. Franz, is the blonde. He's kind of like the goofy one, Albert, because first they attacked, but then they had to start retreating because the French overwhelmed them. And Albert, he gets hit. But he can still stand up, but then he can't. He can't run away. And then Paul looks back, and Albert gets swarmed by French soldiers. He drops his weapon and he begs for mercy. And you think, you think for a moment, oh, maybe they'll capture him and he won't die. But then the got, the flamethrower soldier just lights him up, and then you see this kid who has been with Paul the whole time. He's just an like an 18 year old child, and he's burned. He's dying by being burnt alive. And he begged for his life and it, it, the brutality of, of the fighting, I think that was a moment that in that film, I think that was like the most brutal thing I saw in the movie and it was really affecting. Harkens back to uh, Saving Private Ryan with the opening battle after the the allied forces finally get through the beach and above the trenches and everything and, and, and make it to the trenches and you know they're using their flamethrowers and the the German soldiers who weren't even Germans, many of them were Austrian or from other countries who were being forced to fight they are begging for mercy, but then the American soldiers just kill them and let them burn alive rather than let them be saved yeah. by a bullet and for mercy. So it shows how horrific war is and how it changes people so much. And, and they're really – even though there were plenty of prisoners on both sides in every single war, most people are not going to get captured. They're going to get killed instead of being taken a prisoner despite the fact if they give up and beg for mercy. They didn't try to romanticize it or Hollywood it, which I really liked as well. And also, one of the strengths to 1917 is uh, the unbelievable cast. You get uh, George McKay and uh, the other actor; I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He was in Game of Thrones. He—they're both excellent. But then you get this assortment of veteran UK actors just popping in for three minutes here, two minutes here. You get Colin Firth as a commanding officer. Mark Strong comes in for five minutes. Andrew Scott. Benedict Cumberbatch is the final commander who Schofield finds... Colonel. The colonel, sorry. Richard Madden ends up being Blake's brother. And so I like how, you know, Sam Mendes, one of the UK's most successful, respected directors, I think that having him plus Roger Deakins, I think any actor is happy to work with those two. And so they have a lot of pull, and they're able to get, like, these huge actors who are movie stars to just be in this film for a couple of minutes. I found it really incredible. They These aren't like big, juicy roles. These aren't showcases. They they aren't even they, – they're barely supporting actors in this. They only have one scene, each one scene, each. But I found it so incredible to see these faces that you recognize sprinkled throughout the film. It was wonderful. Yeah, and uh, yeah, both films have great characters. I do love the characters in 1917 very much. I grew to really – Root for Paul in All choir on the Western Front, for sure. And I liked Cat a lot. He was very funny, Franz and Alberts. So the, their whole ragtag crew, that was the main difference versus just basically just it being Schofield's plot in 1917. We have, like, four friends who are kind of going through this together. But I think the tragedy of the camaraderie that gets destroyed when, you know, they're just in their schoolboy outfits with their hats on and they're trying—they're going to get recruited and they're so excited for the war and they're forging a signature for Paul to go and fight— it's really tragic to see you know how excited they are they think they're going to like summer camp basically they're so excited to do this because of their indoctrination and then day one when they get there you know um one of the one with the glasses he's crying because he's like i didn't know this was going to be like and and just to see that he dies the first day and to see what it's truly like to get there. They they first realize it when they're forced to get off the trucks and they put their gas masks on. I think Paul realizes it first when he's, like you said, he's forced to wear it the entire trek to the Western Front. But even in the truck, they're very excited. They're even – they're, they're like joking. singing songs yeah. and – and joking and everything they weren't even taking their the commanding officer seriously yeah like they were laughing like they loved being yelled at in that moment it's not until they get to the trench and see what the veteran officers look like that you know this is this is not where we're supposed to be And both films did that great in terms of like having these veteran officers who've been in the trenches for months at a time whether it be uh cat who's the the veteran officer here who becomes great friends with with um with paul in the film same thing with uh... he's the most compassionate person too he's the one who keeps giving him food at first and he seems to have like a lot of his humanity he never really loses his humanity i think it's because of the loss of his son you know he's lost a son from smallpox and he sees these are kids coming in 16 17 18 years old they they probably have never even kissed a girl or a guy or they've never done anything and they've never lived life before and here they are Going to die in the mud, alone, scared, terrified, unprepared, convinced from propaganda that this is the greatest life that they can live. They are the greatest generation. But what the film does so well is show an entire loss of a generation of young men and young boys from both countries. But especially with Germany, like they've lost an entire generation of men and boys someone and says uh, someone says that germany will be empty soon we'll be out of yeah we'll be out of men yeah. eventually soon so it's horrifically tragic and both films do a great job showcasing just again the loss of life but in terms of what they also do really well production design wardrobe props both films are outrageously accurate and phenomenal even like making these actors wear. accurate boots that are uncomfortable and like you can even see when they're running through the mud and trenches they're clanky they can barely even walk these boots that they have like bolts on the bottom yeah they're just heavy as hell these helmets that don't fit and i think they did a great job with the historical accuracy for the weaponry the clothing the wardrobe the equipment and i I think it was just both movies do a tremendous job and especially 1917 i think is really special with its production design and what really I think sets it apart is the the epic nature of the film's visuals, and in, in all Quiet on the Western Front, all the battles basically they basically feel and look the same, but in 1917, every action sequence is very different and very visually unique and interesting, um, and sets itself apart from the previous one. Um, and first of all, you got to start with the trenches. They built almost an entire miles worth of trenches for that film, and the trench work is incredible because. With this, with night, with Western Front, or any other traditional movie, you can get away with using the same trench areas with different shots and angles to make it look different. But you can't do that with a long take. So they actually had to physically build these trenches in 1917, and to to build almost an, almost a mile's worth is just unbelievable. But then you have incredible set pieces like the the bunker explosion, um, and then you have that beautiful night sequence in that destroyed town with the flares overhead illuminating. Everything in the incredible shadows and, and the depth. And then you have that river shootout. And, and then you have him. And then you have Schofield going down the river. And then you have that beautiful forest with the soldiers singing for the other soldiers. And then you have that showcase, show-stopping, huge um, charge sequence. I think the strength to 1917 is how, visually, how the film visually evolves and changes um, from sequence to sequence to keep you, uh, I think, stimulated. And to keep it from feeling repetitive in any way, shape, or form, I thought it was really magnificent what they did. I concur. How about we head into our intermission, Anthony, and then we'll get back to 1917. and Netflix is all quiet on the western front. Before we continue, the very best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, besides telling your family members and friends about us who love movies, is to use our coupon codes and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get awesome perks, like every patron gets a weekly bonus episode that you can watch and tune into. Only patrons have this access, as well as we have different tiers, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tiers. It doesn't cost that much to join if you just want to pay $2, $10, $25 and $100 tier patrons get a access to our Discord where we interact with you every day, have watch parties, $25 and $100 tier patrons get their own custom episode, you pick the topic, we do it for you, just for you godfather patrons and 25 and 100 tier patrons to tune into, chosen one patrons, you are the 100 tiers. You also get an executive producer credit at the end of main episodes, as well as a personal watch party. And after three months, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. Patreon is the only reason why we can do this show full time. So thank you so much for the support around the world. Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our very good friends at, you know it, manscaped.com, the leaders in men's grooming. You gotta get on Manscaped. Use our coupon code, Raiders of the Lost. That's one word. Get that at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Around the entire world, off your entire order. The Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer, this thing is a beast for your grooming needs. 7,000 RPM motor, skin safe to the touch, waterproof, has a built in light, wireless charger, is the ultimate grooming accessory. Gentlemen, I highly recommend getting it, as well as their Boxer Briefs 2.0, beyond comfortable. Really cool designs. A little extra space down there for your junk, so you'll be comfy all day, as well as Manscaped has two in one shampoo, body conditioner. That's not a thing. Two one shampoo conditioner, body wash, body conditioner sounds <laughs> nice though. <laughs> deodorant, as well as everything you could potentially need for your daily day grooming needs, even chapstick that Anthony's addicted to. <laughs> I use it like twelve times a day. Go to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost. Get twenty percent off and free shipping today. We actually we just got a care package of deodorant and chapstick, and I was like, "Can I have the chapstick?" And I was yeah. like, "I'll take the deodor- I'll take the deodorant. It's great stuff." Yeah. Our other amazing sponsor, of course, is MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order there today. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library. High quality prints, super affordable. They also have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. So if you want to deck your home out with movie posters or you want to get a movie poster for that special someone in your life, head on over to... MoviePosters dot com, and don't forget to use our promo code Raiders ten to get ten percent off your order today. All right, let's do our intermission. Anthony, you ready? I was born ready. Let's begin with the movie quote competition. This one's for me. Tell her that when you found me, I was here, and I was with the only brothers that I have left, and that there's no way I was gonna desert them. (laughs) It's a wicked awesome guy. Wicked awesome. Wicked awesome actor. It's Matt Damon in Saving Private Ryan, sir. I have one from a fan, Cole Wiggins. Little hand says it's time to rock and roll. Oh man, that sounds so familiar. Little hand says it's time to rock and roll. I don't know. Point break. Oh man, that's Swayze. Yeah. No, I think it was see. I thought I was I thought I was in the van before they're about to rob a bank. Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you Because they be right. always say it's time to rock and roll before yeah. they go in for the banks. Yeah, I think you might be right. Okay, here's my quote from... Uh, I'm not going to tell you the movie, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sometimes we don't do things we want to do so that others won't know we want to do them. Sometimes we don't do things we want to do so that others won't know we want to do them. I don't know. The Village. Huh. Talking about... Uh, she tells Joaquin she knows he's like, he likes her. He likes her. Because he doesn't touch her. Gotcha. Moving on to our movie release here, guests. So, like I said, All Quiet on the Western Front has been adapted two other times into films. Actually, Dentley said those years earlier in the episode. Can you remember what years they came out? 1930, 1979. Yeah. <laughs> I knew the thirty one. I didn't know the second years. So, thank you for that. Thank you for the second one. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, guess this movie release year. Barton Fink. 19 98? 91? Wow, it's that old. Holy crap. It's really good. I watched it uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I haven't seen it in like a decade. But it's I fantastic. Didn't... I knew it was the 90s, but damn. John Goodman's crazy in it. Movie pop quiz time. What war did Clint Eastwood serve in? Clint served in... Um... How old is he? 182. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Korean War, yeah, nice. He also was he was so he was a passenger on yeah, it's a a, crazy story. A Navy eighty one Q torpedo bomber that developed engine problems and crashed off the California coast near Point Reyes, not far from San Francisco. He and the pl- pilot swam to shore two miles away in the frigid water, which is a crazy story. And when he got back, uh, because of his ordeal, they didn't send him back to war. And then he started acting. Yeah, he was uh, honorably discharged. Yeah, I, I heard think in nineteen fifty three, Scott Eastwood told that story. It's crazy, nuts. Because, like, if he went back to war, like, who knows if he would have been acting afterwards. Okay, here's my quiz question. How many times has Roger Deakins been nominated for an Oscar? Fourteen. Yes. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) How many times has he won? Three? Two. Two. Uh, Do you know the movies? Yeah, you know the movies. uh, He won for Blade Runner, and he also won for, was it 1917? Blade Runner and, I mean, yeah, 1917. Hold on, I think I might have messed up. Dude. Has he won- yeah, 1917 and 2049, he won four. Yeah, so I'm, I'm correct. He didn't win for Skyfall? Nah. What? Nuh-uh. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <I know. laughs> One of the best-looking movies of all time, honestly. Well, I think I, I think Lubesky won that year, so that's a pass. Lubeski won like two years in a row. Yeah, that's a pass. Yeah. That's okay. He might have won three years in a row. Lubeski. I think he did win three years in a row because Two won twice. He won and and then for Revenant, for- Birdman, and what else did he win for? I'm pretty sure. Well, I mean, he didn't win for his best movie, which is insane. I think he won two or three years in a row. Cause I know because um Inuritu won two years in a row for director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hold on, let me I got it right here. He won for Gravity. Gravity, yeah, Gravity Birdman, Revenant, back to back to back. Yeah. Never three been years in never row. been done before. Never will happen again. But um the fact that he didn't even get nominated for Children of Men shocking. Is insane. And he also did not win for the Tree of Life. Which I think is the greatest cinematography of all time. It could be. It's, it's really incredible. It's really incredible. All right. How about we move on to haters of the week and the unsubscribes? What are we, what are we looking at, Anthony? Oh, yeah. We got some. We got some. Well, I have a funny line real quick so, from Keegan O'Ne- O'Connell. Uh, he, he wrote, when you brought up the General Zog quote... I said, on a farm, the same time as you guys love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up? <laughs> on a farm. <laughs> Samuel Cahill, no news on Easily, one of the greatest films of all time, The Banshees at Minasheeran, which I watched this twice this opening weekend, unsubscribed. And uh, Samuel, we just watched it. We're, we're going to do an episode on it next yeah. week. And then he said, oh, sorry, I didn't realize it didn't come out in America yet. <laughs> you guys got it first. So, but I I saw it day of, and it was amazing. I saw it yesterday. It's incredible. Yeah, it's great. So so good, and then um, listen to Lucky Vera Famiga plays Kate Bishop's mother, not Hawkeye's. Still subscribed though. <laughs> Thanks for staying <laughs> subscribed. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> they're all the same. <laughs> and then uh, Evan Mortarana ninety eight wrote, "What you don't believe that Prisoner of Azkaban doesn't feel like a movie?" Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie. It's amazing. We have a great five star review. Oh yeah, Let's from hear it. Senor Pero, Senor Pero, uh, the best podcast. I've been listening since I found them on TikTok two years ago. I listen nearly every day and look forward to it. Wow, it's incredible to hear. I had the opportunity to meet them during San Diego Comic-Con because I live right there. So I messaged them on Instagram. They responded very quickly and was able to take my mom to go meet them. And then we got an invite from them to go see Bullet Train in IMAX up in LA 10 days before I know it came who out this with them. Is. Yeah, we know who this Brady. is. Brady. Brady. What's up, bud? <laughs> it was truly an opportunity of a lifetime, and I'm extremely grateful. There is no podcast more joyful, friendly, funny, and in depth, in depth on their topic than them. Genuinely great people, and I can only see them growing in popularity and going places in the future. They put me onto my favorite movie of all time, Everything Everywhere, all at once, and I hope they get the opportunity to create their own movie in the future. Highly recommend listening to them, though, if they make it, if though they make it, a movie, it better not be an Origins movie. <laughs> <laughs> we would never. Brady, we would never. Thanks, pal. Thanks, Brady. We appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, and then it was so cool that our IMAX reps, they invited Brady and his mother they, to come to an early screening for Bullet Train where they had the David Leach and yeah. his wife, producing partner, were there with a Q&A, which is really cool. So that was a really cool experience for Brady to come as well. Yeah, so it was awesome. Yeah, Brady, you're the best. Thanks, We appreciate Spud. you, pal. Now, on this day in film history, today is November 10th, In 1940, Walt Disney began serving as an informer for the Los Angeles office of the FBI. His job was to report back information on Hollywood subversives. -subversives, -subversives. Yeah, I'm saying that word right. Yeah, man. In 1969, Sesame Street premiered on PBS. In 1990, Home Alone premiered. In 1998, Star Trek Insurrection premiered. In 2000, Men of Honor is released. In 2004, The Polar Express is released. In 2006, Stranger Than Fiction and Babel are released. In 2014, The Hunger Games' Mockingjay Part 1 premieres. In 2017, Paddington 2, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Murder on the Orient Express are released. What a day. In 2021, New Zealand filmmaker Peter Jackson sells Weta Digital's technology division to video games company. Can I finish? <laughs> Sorry, I just... Can I f- People can't listen because you're talking over me, Anthony. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again. I'm going to run the whole thing back now. I'm <laughs> just kidding. In 2021, New Zealand filmmaker Peter Jackson sells Weta Digital's technology division to video games company Unity for $1.6 billion. Happy birthday to the late Brittany Murphy and Taron Egerton. He actually just sold another company for $580 million um, this year. Well company? It's, it has to do with uh, technology-based CGI animation as well. Wild. Now, my streaming recommendation is going to be Fruitville Station just got put on Amazon Prime for November. Incredibly emotional film from uh, Matthew Ryan B. Coogler. Jordan and Ryan Coogler, who obviously Ryan Coogler makes the Black Panther movies since that just came out this month as well. My recommendation is Burning, which is a wonderful, mysterious, dramatic South Korean film. Uh, Stephen Yeun uh, has a great role in it. He's terrific in it. Highly recommend. It's incredible. Before we continue, we have to tell you about our live event that's happening on January 21st, 2023 in Los Angeles. Tickets will be on sale, if not already, very soon. So stay tuned for that if you want to come see us live in person in Los Angeles on January 21st. Stay tuned. Hope to see you there. Now let's get back into our discussion on 1917 and Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. And I think that something that uh, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front did really well was show a lot of things that happen in war and that happened in trench warfare that we don't normally see in the average war movie. We get some of this in 1917 as well, but I think like showing the gas masks was really integral to show the how horrific this world was and the technology as well as showing the death of those sixty recruits who took off their gas masks too early, again showing the, the immense death in the war. Um, the indo- the indoctrination of youth is something we don't usually get in war movies. That's why I think it was so important for this film and the story, and I think it served the plot so well to show how the propaganda of the elites of Germany – and again, every country does this – pushed these young men and these young boys to enlist and to think they were going to be heroes for their country instead of just what, – what actually happened was dying in the mud. Yeah. Also, the flooding of the trenches was something I hadn't seen before. That was next on my list. Oh, nice. So the trenches were great, but to see the flooding and to show how they're trying to just get the water out, that's the day one they get there. They're trying to get rid of the water in the trenches, and they don't know what to do. The recycling of the uniforms and gear, which we talked about earlier – to show that in the opening of the film with the the seamstresses who are repairing bullet holes and the cloaks as well as when paul he's so excited he's enlisting he's getting he gets approved he gets his jacket and his boots and everything he's walking away he realizes that someone else's name is on the jacket he says oh i believe this belongs to somebody and the guy rips it off the tag and says oh sometimes that happens uh if it's too small for that person there's probably just a mistake and then it falls into the ground there's just Dozens of other names for previous owners of jackets that were there. Yeah, that set the stage for, you know, the naivety of youth and the innocence of youth and uh, how young people... In this society, we're so likely to believe the elders, whatever they said, without question. I think, I think modern-day kids are much more rebellious than, I think, kids like this because the culture is different. When well, we, yeah. we have social media, social media, and media and internet. technology, and internet. It's so different when you're in a secluded country. Yeah, and all you, you, all just, you get is yeah. propaganda from the military and the government. You think that what they're saying is the truth. And I think that that's one of the strength, strengths of the film is the lies that the, the government and the, those in power fed to the, to the public— to really make them uh, believe that what they were doing was just and right and also that they would survive and come back as heroes which was which they knew they were getting 40,000 deaths a month they knew that they were just sending these kids literally just to die just to stand in the way of bullets yeah. that's all they were, they were using them for I really enjoyed how Dogfight's aerial combat was literally just a small backdrop in All Quiet on the Western Front. It starts off like that in 1917 with that dogfight in the air, but then the, the plane crashes, obviously, in front of Schofield and Blake. It brings the aerial combat in the planes into the story and the plot. I like how it's just a background service to the characters of All Quiet on the Western Front where they're reading the letters and they're literally just taking a shit right there. And there's a dogfight going on behind them and they don't even really pay attention to it because it's every day this is happening probably. So I really like that as a backdrop composition to the shots. And both films did a good job with uh, lacing moments of humanity throughout. Uh, for example, like that conversation with him talking about his, his he's reading the letter because uh, he's illiterate. He's reading a letter from Cat, his, from Kat's letter from his wife and uh you hear you learn about the the dead son. It's very tragic. But also the other friend who ends up going to hang out with the French girls and one of the French girls, Eloise, gives him her handkerchief, which all the kid all the boys like take turns smelling. It's I very, turn with it. <laughs> very funny. He's like, Hey guys, it's mine, it's mine. In nineteen seventeen has really brilliant moments, um, most notably the cherry blossom conversation that the two characters have while they're walking through the the hillside um, you really get to feel for Blake and you get a sense for both these young characters and who they are and what their lives are like and it's not like forced it doesn't feel like cheap dialogue or like cheesy exposition it feels just like you're two people getting to know each other and just sharing a memory from their past and it's not out of nowhere it's because they're walking through the cherry blossoms and also when Schofield interacts with that young mother and her baby in during that um, ruin in that ruined city in the basement of one of the broken-down houses And he gives her the milk that they got on the farm. Uh, He speaks French, so he can they can have a conversation. And you know, just him giving the baby the milk and then holding like the baby's little hand. And there's soldiers looking for him just right outside. The little beats like that, like little moments and flourishes of humanity, and and realizing what we're fighting for and what we're trying to protect and. Like that, these are just human beings. I think they're laced beautifully within both films. Yeah, and that's actually a baby that she found. That's not even her child. She found that baby, and fortunately, he got the milk earlier from the farm right before Blake died. And you know, that's a great thematic point. I I would say that 1917 definitely has better themes about life and the effects of war on a population. You can use the three of them as as a metaphor for what's happened to the countries and what's happened to their population. How they're they're just the families are torn apart they're all just kind of individuals who kind of have to come together to try to reform their country basically because they've lost their family members and they're basically alone now so i think the thematic elements in 1917 are definitely a little stronger and you know the innocence with milk that's a great uh metaphor for the film and 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 i'm sorry and then the the singing scene Mm -hmm. just a group of young soldiers listening to someone with a beautiful voice just for a, a few minutes right before they're charged to war just that moment of humanity. Yeah, we're we're all quiet on the Western Front. Doesn't really have m- many moments of beauty and humanity. It's just more focused on death, really. I would say for yeah. sure. Um, but also something that Western Front does so well. We briefly talked about it earlier. Is the starving of soldiers and how hungry they were, where you know, Kat and Paul are sac- are risking their lives to go steal. The goose from the farmer, which on the country from the countryside, which ends up being a really funny scene where they they cook the goose. and They're trying to keep it secret and they This is the first meat they probably had in a year or something like that, because it's been 18 months. They probably haven't tasted meat that in that entire time, because all they really get is just old, stale bread. They get nothing because the government doesn't care about them. Meanwhile, the elitists are eating whatever they want in luxury. Even the general every night is having a five course luxurious meal throwing wine on the floor. It's like he's throwing it at his dog or something. Or I think what he's doing in that scene is uh, sometimes wine. If the temperature changes while it's being transported, you can have like little particles in the bottom of the mm-hmm. glass. And so I think that he's just like on his last sip. He's every time he doesn't want any particles, so he just throws it on the floor. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. It's like a waste of money, and he mm-hmm. doesn't even care about his his soldiers. Also, that uh, also connects to like I stated earlier, where these soldiers are literally surviving not only against they have to survive. The war in the battles, but they're surviving against their leaders. Their leaders are basically as much an enemy as the people who are shooting at them are. Yeah, I think that the the character, that um, colonel... No, no, it, the, who's the guy? The general. The general. I think that was portrayed... With the mustache and the bald yeah. head, yeah. What's, what's really great about the portrayal is that he tells a story to his, his inferior how he was too old for war. Like, he never f- actually fought in war because it j- happened before... He was a it happened when he was too old, and so he he says he's he like wishes he could have fought, which is such a elitist thing to say, and absolutely no truth behind it because he also comes from nepotism, where his father was a uh, commanding officer as well, so you can tell this guy lived a life of privilege. Uh, hasn't actually had to face true conflict even though he says he wishes he could have seen true conflict He does have a scar he does have a scar i guess but he he says that he's the war happened when he was too old the first the war before this one he could have a scar from whatever but i do look at him as a as a perfect textbook example of uh, a spoiled elitist who comes from wealth and who comes from a powerful family in high class yeah and Actually reminds me of Lieutenant Dan minus, you know, Lieutenant Dan's character is a little more comical, but Lieutenant Dan, same kind of situation where like he wants to die in combat, but Forrest won't let him. And so it's kind of the same kind of thing where that general wants nothing but battle and conflict and even sends his boys out to die to try to salvage somewhat of a victory on the final day, the 11th day, the 11th hour of the 11th month, even though there's only a few hours to the ceasefire. He's still sending them out to die, and most of them do die. And what I loved about Quiet on the Western Front was the addition of the ceasefire to the plot, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. It was just so interesting and disturbing at the same time to see, obviously, our main character, Paul, gets stabbed literally a few seconds before the ceasefire is hailed out. And then as soon as the ceasefire is announced, we have French and Germans fighting each other in these trenches— They stop fighting. They put their their guns other, shoulder to shoulder. They don't even look at each other. And Paul's dying out. You know, he gets stabbed in the heart by a a bayonet. And you think how unlucky he was compared to how lucky he thought he was an hour before. How unlucky he is now. And, you know, you can see how much changed in him, too, where this is the the final march. And there's something that, that changed about his face on this final march compared to the other marches. Uh, past the trenches where he is just a, a monster now. He's killed. Yeah. He he's has John killed, Wick mode. <laughs> yeah. He's killed with, with his gun. He's killed with his bare hands. He's killed with knives and he's just a changed human being. And it's almost like he kind of doesn't want to survive past this moment. Anyways, like what would he be going back to? You know, same thing with cat. Like cat was talking to him earlier when he's reading letters, like what is there to go back to? What, what are we going to go back to normal life? Like, what are we supposed to do and it's almost like he, he's—it's impossible to go back to a normal life after this, even if you do survive. But then Katz does say he looks forward to Christmas and making a new child. Yeah, true. But that—I think he was a little more disillusioned halfway through the film when he said that earlier line. Yeah, I think you're right. You're probably right there. But still, like, what would they be going back to? And I can't help but just think about how much Paul changed on that final march. I also think that you know I think they wanted to illustrate great irony. It is—it is powerful irony to have your character die seconds before the ceasefire um needlessly because i think they wanted to demonstrate the futility of the entire endeavor especially that final push um being the futility of it in terms of it just completely being pointless uh unwinnable and just a way for the general to feel like he did something and all it did was cause more death needlessly and so i would say the futile stakes were what they wanted to showcase where Paul died really for no reason, and millions died for, for that same reason as well. And I think that's probably why they went in that direction with, with the ending. And what's really interesting about both 1917 and All Quiet on the Western Front is they're both loosely based on true events, obviously the world wars, but um, with 1917, Sam Mendes' grandfather, his true story of real life being in World War One was the base for the idea of the film, where he was injured in May 1918 when he accidentally inhaled poisonous gas used by a German army during their attack at La Basse Canal near near uh, Bethune, France. But you know, he kind of had a similar story where he had to go on this little mission to give information to another battalion or another troop, and he was chosen because he was much small. He was a small guy, and he was able to like five foot four. Yeah, he's, he's able to hide and get through the areas more quickly without being seen. And so, basically, it's kind of a, a loose, ins- a true inspiration for the film 1917. Then, obviously, All Quiet on the Western Front is based on the world-renowned 1929 German novel of the same name written by Enrich Maria Remark. It's historical fiction, and it tells the story of Paul Ballmer, who enlisted as a German soldier in World War One with propaganda-fueled dreams of becoming a hero. However, those dreams are shattered by the violent, horrific reality of the wars. Now, en- um, Enric himself was a German World War I veteran who witnessed and experienced the trauma he describes in his book. He actually even had to tone down the horrors of the war in his book at the request of the publisher. And so it's somewhat of a true story based on his uh, intera- his experiences in the war as well as his comrades and fellow soldiers' interactions, diaries from other soldiers. He kind of basically pieced together the story with that. And the, the 2022 movie version that we've been talking about with All Quiet on the Western Front from Netflix adds the extra true story flavor. This is according to Decider. That was not a main focus in the novel. The signing of the armistice of uh, on November 11th, 1918, which ended the fighting and signaled a defeat for Germany th- uh, through the storyline director, Edward Berger, Peppers, and key real-life World War One figures, including Matthias Erzberger, played by Daniel Bruhl, a German official who was instrumental in pushing for an end to the war, and General Ferdinand Frosch, played by Thibault de Montalbert, a famously aggressive French general who became the Allied Commander-in-Chief in in late March 1918 and launched a war-winning attack. I loved those scenes. I thought they were fascinating, and it reminded me of the the peace treaty signing in Lincoln and a couple other war films. Because when you think about it, so many lives were, were lost, 40 million And it all comes down to this room with a handful of people to sign a piece of paper to make it stop. I think that's such a a crazy thing to wrap your head around. Just three signatures on a piece of paper and it ends all this bloodshed and all this mindless warfare. It's just a really fascinating thing to even conceive of. And it, these things actually have and still do happen. And the hesitation that even though Germany knows they're going to lose the war, or they know they're going to lose this, they're, they're losing men r- at ridiculous numbers, they're still hesitant to sign. They have to take this 72-hour window to try to telegraph the conditions of the surrender of the treaty and armistice to their government and get approval from them. And then when they finally do... Um, there's that general who almost doesn't sign at the end. He his hesitation yeah. because of pride, you know, Daniel the, mud, Bruce, the fatherland. Yeah, Daniel Brühl's character, he's trying to get rid of this self-pride that these German government officials have of like, oh, we can't surrender defeat. These terms are ridiculous. It's like, would you rather not have a country anymore? Would you rather lose every soldier that you've ever had? Would you rather lose the ent- an entire generation of your youth or end the war, which they had to do? And thank goodness they did. Yeah, it's. It, I think it was really a really powerful mo- mo- um, moment. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more of his character, Erzberger. I think maybe an earlier scene I think would have helped for sure. But I, th- I think it was a strength of the film to add that entire sequence. Yeah, in. especially because he was billed as the lead actor for yeah. this. But I think it's because he's just a big name, especially in yeah. Germany. I didn't even know he was in the movie until I saw him, like a profile of him. And I was like, is that Brühl? <laughs> <laughs> you were like, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't even know he was in this. And Both these movies have, have good music. I think 1917's by Thomas Newman is exceptional. I mean, the themes he came up with, the music is just phenomenal. You can listen to this album anytime. And but I think what Quiet and Western Front did was a little different with their music is it kind of felt like in Glorious Bastards that time where there's like percussion editing, which I kind of just like feel it feels it felt like, like gunfire. Yeah. So like the yeah. drum beats and some like heavy, uh, I don't even know, synthesizer there's like synth brass. beats, synthesizer yeah. beats and percussion beats with drums to To go with cuts, which is a really interesting uh, way to tell the story and to way to to push scenes along. Um, but also with just the, even when there wasn't editing, it, mm-hmm. would, it would just be like a long take, and you'd hear just like a rap of a few drums. And bah, bah. It would, yeah. yeah, it felt like it was, it, was faster, it's, it's yeah. like, it felt very interesting. Yeah, I liked yeah. it a lot because you don't really get contemporary sounding music with period pieces like this. And I also liked the chaotic nature of the music, where you never knew when music would take, when music would play. And it was honestly, it was surprising and shocking when you heard it. And I think they were trying to emulate what, like, the shock of hearing gunfire, the shock of a battle starting, uh, trying to put you into the shoes of the the mindset of the sh- soldiers in that regard. So I think that the music achieved that for me, for sure. And I, like you said earlier, it's important to tell the perspective from both sides. And at the end of the day... None of these soldiers wanted to go to the war. None of them wanted to fight. None of them wanted to be there, whether they were indoctrinated and radicalized by propaganda, which they found out what the war was going to really be like. But they didn't want to fight each other and kill each other once they're there. They didn't want to be there. And I think they showed so well how intense the indoctrination and power was wielded in it, to, use, to exploit the youth and these soldiers in the third act when the general— launches his final invasion and attack on the french a pointless futile attack even though the armistice is going to go into effect that morning still launches this attack and if you don't fight you're going to get executed right on the spot which yeah. they show yeah it's it's, it's the soldiers are put in terrible situations there's there's no way out of it and and there's no redeeming quality to it at all in any way shape or form but i will say there were two things that took me out of uh western front a little bit Uh, The CGI blood oftentimes took me out of it. Um, I understand that you can't, with these huge sets and uh, so many takes, you can't do practical blood all the time. But there were moments where the CGI blood was just like very apparent, especially because the coloring was just so off compared to the rest of the film or the -hmm. rest of the image. But then also the color grading on the film. I I know most filmmakers nowadays love shooting on digital, and some filmmakers are wonderful at it. And Deacon's is the best. And he makes digital look like something special. But I do think that some uh, oftentimes digital filmmaking can look a little too much like it's like a television show. And there was I think the color grading in the cinematography of this film, it felt a little too clean and a little too clinical, a little lacking in contrast. Um, and a lot of the images, especially in sequences where there should there's just no light or very little light, there were still no t- no true blacks or midtones in the coloring. And in 1917, there's plenty of sequences where the color black is just dominating the frame, just deep, deep blacks and harsh shadows because uh, there'll be just be one or two lights in, and you're seeing the contrast. And But in this moment, they're, they're, you're in underground bunkers, and there's only like a, a couple of candles lit, and there's still no true blacks anywhere. You're seeing everything in the image. And so I was taken out of some of the sequences completely because of how um, the filmmakers made every inch of every shot visible, and everything was like, the, either the midtones or blacks were raised, which is, flattens the image a little too much, and I think they eliminated too much contrast from the images. I, I would have liked a little bit more of a a, a grittier, less clean aesthetic. Uh, and you even mentioned early in the film, you were like, "I wish they shot this on film." And I was like, "Yeah, me too." Because, I mean, even though 1917 is not shot on film, yeah. like you said, Deacons but you have Deacons, makes Deacons doing Deacons it different. Now, I agree. And, like I said earlier in the episode, I wish I, it could have used a little more artistry because I think an example of, of this is the flares. 1917, mm-hmm. they used flares so well for lighting to make great artistic images throughout some of these sequences, especially at night. Whereas with All Quiet on the Western Front, they did supplement some of the imagery with flares and some sequences with flares li- doing the lighting. But it kind of just seemed like they just did it just to kind of replicate what they did in 1917. It didn't feel like there was a purpose to do it other than just to have like a cool flare shot, which I get. It looked great, but it wasn't the same effect that 1917 had. It didn't have the motivation in the scene because in the scene, the soldiers are looking for uh, Schofield. So they're sh- shooting up flares trying to find him. So there's motivation behind the flares, but in I, I get I get you I mean Western Front seemed like they were just doing it just to do it. There's a few moments where they're doing it to see the no man's land to make sure no one's coming. Yeah. You know I get that, but there was a, a few other sequences where there are red flare shots like just pouring through windows and, and openings, and it looks cool, but it didn't really serve the storyline of what was happening at the time, like in 1917. That's what makes Dickens the the real lighting master because, uh, his his approach and his. His theory regarding lighting is that the light always needs to have motivation. If you see the light in the scene, it needs to be there for a reason. And it can't just be there to look cool. It can't just be there to make the the scene look interesting. It has to have a purpose. And that's why his his lighting is always the best there's ever been. Yeah, so I would just say if I had to choose one that I liked more, I I enjoyed 1917 more. I think the, the runtime, it flows a lot better. Um, better pace yeah. better pacing even though you know it's not technically one take but the illusion of the one take works so well that's one of the reasons why it flows incredibly well and it seems fast uh all quiet in the western front i loved it a lot i really did i enjoyed it it just got pretty slow at times you know the runtime two it, and a half yeah, an hours, a it was a bit long and i get that's i think that's what they were do- going for to make it like contrast the actual war itself but it did seem a little it seemed to drag at some points here and there Otherwise, I thought it was still – the cinematography, again, was really good. 90, 90% of the shots were incredible. But again, like 10 to 5% of them weren't as artistic or up to the standards for the rest of the film. Versus 1917, every shot is perfect and pristine and, and yeah. framed so well. You know what I expected the end of the film to be, and I thought it would have made a perfect cut to black, is the second time they go to the farm. And then Paul jumps over the fence, and then it cuts to um, uh, cats. And he's just – Leaning against the wooden gate and there's snow falling. I thought it was going to cut to black right there and that would have been the film. I Mm -hmm. think that would have been a really good ending. Ambiguous. um, Just showing like this moment. I thought it was really beautiful. But then the movie had another 35 minutes, maybe longer Mm -hmm. after that. And I was like, that might have been the when you should have ended the film. That's what I was thinking. But I think they're both just still they're still yeah, really yeah. great. They did a great and job. I, it, for a Netflix I, movie, it's really it's great. It's one of Netflix's yeah. best originals for yeah. sure. You know, I, I think this is one of the best they've made since like the Irishman. They, I think they've really only made a handful of really great movies, Netflix, and this is one of them for sure. Now let me give you the critic scores for these films. So Let's 1917, hear it. directed by Sam Mendes, Rotten Tomatoes, it's an 89% in uh critic score, 88% audience score with an eight point two on IMDb Anything around eight is really great. And eight point over eight is phenomenal. Eight point two with a ton of reviews. And then all acquired on the Western Front as of right now, when we film this Wednesday, November second, twenty twenty two, it is on IMDB listed at a seven point nine. And that's really good, I think, especially because yes. it's excellent. It's only about twenty-five thousand reviews. And then Rotten Tomatoes, this film, is a little higher. It's at a ninety-two percent critic score, ninety percent audience score, directed by Edward Berger again. And Both just really received very well by critics and audiences alike. Very similar ratings, and I I think they're both really well made. 1917, I think, is the superior film, but I think All Quiet on the Western Front for being the third time this movie's been made. I think they did a really great job, and they did interesting ways to change up the story and the plot by adding the the cross-cutting plot of the armistice and the signing of the of the treaty. I thought that worked really well with the story in the juxtaposition of the elitists versus the soldiers who were basically turned into just body bags to accept bullets for their cause. And the exploitation and indoctrination of the youth, I think, is one of the great strengths of the film i completely agree they're both incredible films and I, I, I think that western front they did a fantastic job um and i do think that 1917 will go down as one of the one of the greats in the military genre also you have to factor in that we didn't get a chance to see this in theaters all quiet on the Western yeah. front so i, I think I, that watched, takes away yeah. from it as well i, I think i would have had it would have had a bigger impact on me if i saw it in theaters for sure if they shaved some runtime off in theaters i think it would have been a much better film didn't really get to experience it in the theater like we did in 1917 which I think is one of the reasons why I film presentation in movie theaters is so important it doesn't feel the same when you're watching it on a couch like exactly. when we started the film and 10 minutes into it i was like man i wish we were in a theater right now if you can pause it to go make a snack it's not the same experience yeah <laughs> I, I paused i paused to make a glass of wine <laughs> <laughs> but i really I, I was pleasantly surprised by this film me too a lot of people recommended it to us so really hope you all enjoyed it as well 1917 excellent war film as well i think it's an all-timer for sure for war in the war genre very good film from Netflix here with All Quiet on the Western Front. Really hope you enjoyed this episode from us, everybody. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John Agras, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, <laughs> Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam,